Welcome back for a special midweek episode of the What the Niche podcast. And as always, I am your hostess with the mostess, Scare Factor, Andrew Morris. Now, I'm only going to promote one thing, seeing as how I just did this a couple of days ago. Please head over and check out the special Halloween episode of my friends Brian Rodman and Jeremy Woodring's podcast, The Dastardly Dingoes, which stars me in this week's show. And we dive down the horror realm rabbit hole. You can find the link to the episode in my episode description. Now let's end this suspense and get on to this week's episode. In this bonus episode, we continue to examine the wild and wonderful world of women in horror. But with this being a special midweek Halloween bonus episode, I'm going to use the opening to present an homage to one of my favorite times of the year. Why do we have to wait a year? Guys, Halloween isn't a date on the calendar. Yeah, it is. It's the 31st. No, Halloween is in your hearts. Every time a little kid cries in fear, that's Halloween. Every time something repulsive ends up in a mailbox, that is Halloween. As long as you carry the spirit of destruction and vandalism in your hearts, every day is Halloween. No, look, it is the 31st. <sighs> Men, we are going to have Halloween this weekend. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft. To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.
A square box filled with steaming pepperoni slices. Television creating muffled screams. As another horror classic emanates colors of fear, casting muted red shadows on the wall. Cramped around our shared reflections, miniature monsters begin to form. Darkened eyes, blood meticulously dripping down from tiny mouths, flashes imprison the memory, becoming scrapbook pieces of horror. Tattered garbs covering small bodies with pumpkin adorned bags in tow. The temporary ghouls step into the night trekking through the urban terrain, vast arrays of brilliant colored leaves, crackle and crunch under every step. Jewels of light sparkle on each porch, welcoming those creatures of fright. Appeasements of the spirits cascade into the open bags creating an unspoken agreement, avoiding chaos and trickery. Cacophonies of scampering children fill the air. Showcases of terror presented on every lawn, basking in the joyous mania of littering the neighborhood landscapes with dismembered bodies, skulls, witches, vampires, or movie monsters. The goblin slaves of sugar venture through the forests of manufactured terrors until their weakened bodies submit to the pangs of the day. And it's back to the abodes of those meager creeps. Scattered piles of candied treasures cover the floor and the familiar glow from the picture box washes over the faces of those little demons. Every year, we hide our faces, our houses, our lives. And for one evening, we forget about the human plight. Allowing Halloween a mass hypnosis and for the years of allowing us to lose ourselves, I extend a humble piece of gratitude to the frightening and lovely holiday we all call Halloween. And that brings me to my guests for this episode. The first guest is Lydia Burris. She is a professor, horror aficionado, and brilliant, and I do mean brilliant, visual artist. During our conversation, we discuss the negative perceptions held by those in the self-proclaimed fine arts world towards those who create what we'd like to call dark art. We also discuss the disconnect between art school and the realities of making an art career that can allow you to make a living. I thought Lydia was one of my most insightful and thoughtful guests, and I hope 
you enjoy our chat. Okay, well, I'm Lydia Burris, and thank you for having me on this podcast. And <laughs> I, I do a lot of things. Um, I I love, obviously, I'm here to talk about my art, so I make a lot of art. I teach at a community college. I attend um, a lot of conventions a year. I think there was a while there where I was up to like 14 a year and, and quite a few like other shows and, and stuff. Um, gosh, what, you know, it's, it's hard to start with such a wide, <laughs> you know, it's like trying to pare it down. Okay. What have I done over the years? I love, uh, people often ask, you know, what kind of work that I do. And I like to reference, um, I don't know, talking about art history, the, the symbolist movement where there's a lot of interest in dreams and psychology and surrealism too, a little bit, um, a little bit of the occult, perhaps, um, energies and magic and, and just basically the a dark kernel to most of my artwork. I mean, I've tried to make stuff that's not dark and it just makes it extra creepy, you know, <laughs> <laughs> trying to make cute things is a bad idea for me. Maybe it's a good idea. I don't know. People it's like, like, how do you make a stuff. haunting dandelion? How did you do that? Right? It just uh, ends up either awkward or a little extra creepy. Um, and and it's interesting because, you know, I live in Indiana, um, Indianapolis, which is it's a great city. But I wouldn't really say uh, not a lot of people understand dark art here. And I have had to basically create a really thick armor because everybody that comes across my work questions it or they're like, that's weird. You know, why do you do it? Do you make any money doing this? Blah, blah, blah. Like, this is scary. Oh, I love this, but my wife wouldn't let me hang it in the home. You know, <laughs> like, they need a new wife. it's kind of, kind of crazy. <laughs> and I, you know, I, but at the same, on the same coin, you have people coming in that are like, oh my God, your stuff is my favorite. Why don't we have more of this here? So I feel like even though I may get more attention somewhere else, um, I get some of the best attention from those who are so hungry to see things that I make. And I'm one of the few people that make sort of dark art in my area. I mean, there's, there are other people making dark stuff, but, um, but it's, it's definitely a small population. <laughs> hey, it's a niche market. That's okay. It is a niche market. <laughs> it is a niche market. So, but most Mostly that's when I started attending conventions and I found my family, you know, the first horror convention I went to, I was like, why have I waited so long? This is my family. This is people who have similar interests to me, people who love my artwork. And I've been doing horror cons. I think my first one was 2000. Uh, my first con was 2007, but my first horror convention, I think was 2011, maybe. Um, it's uh, I was going to do 2010, but then there Clyde Barker was visiting that one. And I was like, nope, I'm not going to be a vendor because I want to be an attendee. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I feel that like I, I would find, 
Uh, I just did the uh, the Fright Night Film Festival with Ken Daniels. You may you have yes. worked with him, yeah. Um, uh, I've I've done the Fright Night quite a few times. Yeah, and it's just so much fun. And of course, this one was much different. Uh, there was not a lot of people that came. He expected that, uh, but he just kind of wanted to do something so people could get out of the house. But uh, yeah, I'd said that I was talking to one of the uh, the guys that was in attendance there, and uh, I was like, if I if I do do a full on convention where they do three days. I would have to take a day off. I'm not going to work all three days or all or both days because I'm going to have to go enjoy the con because I, you know, that experience for me is just so fun. Uh, I've met so many cool celebrities. Uh, I won't name drop on who was the only negative one. Uh, mm. All of the other ones that I, I've had, uh, you mentioned Clyde Barker, uh, me and you kind of uh, went down the rabbit hole on how much we love him. And uh, oh, my yeah. buddy had went to comic con and uh, I'm driving in the car and he calls me and he goes, Hey Drew, I got a surprise for you. And I'm like, okay. And the next thing I know, I hear a voice come on the line. Hello, is this Clive Barker? And I was like, <laughs> shut the fuck up. I was like, no, it's not. Oh my he God. Goes, He's like, yeah, it's Clive Barker. I got a line here, mate. He's like, well, it's nice to meet you. It's nice to chat you up. And I was like, holy shit, dude, I'm such a fan. And he's like, man, that's awesome. And just that thick British nasty accent that he has just such a cool. Yeah. dude. And, um, what a, what a great thing for my buddy to do just because he knew how much I, of a fan I was and he brought me back a book of blood signed poster. But, um, oh, that's great. Yeah. You already started diving in to some of the things, um, that I, I like to address in these conversations, the assumptions. Um, you were already kind of in that territory, uh, in just your introduction. Um, so I would love for you, you know, as the, the you know, the work that you have kind of self proclaimed as, um, dark, even not if you try to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so what do people assume about you as a person based upon the things that you're creating? Well, you know, I don't really know too much about what they assume because pretty soon we get over whatever their assumptions are and I don't get to ask them. <laughs> what. But I do feel like I don't often get taken very seriously. Um, I, I think there's a lot of assumptions that... Uh, there's already an assumption that an artist is a starving artist kind of mm. job. And that's, that's an assumption that needs to go away because there's plenty of, there's plenty of money to be had in the arts. Um, you just have to make it yourself. Basically. Uh, I'm not talking about making your own money, but you know, <laughs> like there's, you, you just have to be an entrepreneur. You know, you have to be able to promote your brand. You have to be a marketer in order to like make money usually. And, and if you, if you don't dive into any of that stuff, then you can have a hard time at it being an artist. So that's an assumption, well, number one. But with the I horror, ask a quick question. Sorry, yeah. I don't mean to derail you because that's important that you said that. You have to learn to be an entrepreneur. And I know that you said you teach at a community college. I feel like so many of my, my friends that have been through art school and things of that nature, that's something they miss. They teach you how to create, but they don't teach you how to make a career of it. Yes. You know. And that's exactly what I had to deal with. Um, I got my master's uh, and, and I went actually went to England for a year to get my master's. So I did all my undergraduate in the U.S. And then I decided to go overseas um, to get my master's. I was in England. But never once did I hear anybody say the word business or taxes or even clients, really. Like none of that was discussed throughout my entire career as a student. 
And I felt like when I left school, I had to start from scratch to figure out all this stuff. I mean, I was terrified of taxes. I didn't know what it was. I was afraid to get my business license. Um, and it wasn't that hard, but it's just like you had to, you know, there's so much data. It's like I couldn't ingest it all in one year. I just had to like learn a little bit by little bit by little bit each year. And it's it, it wasn't terrible. It's just it's like I had to teach myself um, how to do business. And I still don't think I know all the ropes. Like I, I'm not that great of a business person. Otherwise, who, who knows where I'd be? But I have made it work enough so far that I'm still at least doing it. Um, and the teaching helps. It fills in some of the gaps. Um, my art pays for itself and, and a little extra. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's something that you really have to learn. And, and I, I'm quite proud actually of our little art department at Ivy Tech here because, um, we have, we do talk about business sometimes and we talk about taxes and clients and we've got a, um, like a, there's a portfolio class where the teacher there talks about, you know, how to apply for things and grants and stuff like that. And I, I still am terrible at, you know, I want to like apply for grants and go traveling, but I don't like writing about my stuff so it's it's a struggle in that regard but um but yeah you learn a little bit by little bit that's another great point um you know you have people that will get into their their specific things you know their niches and as far as subjects in school and they're like uh they want to focus on that and then they don't realize the importance as an english teacher i have to say this they don't understand the importance of of knowing how to articulate the things about yourself in a written form you know, because yeah. like you just said, there's going to come a time probably that you're going to have to sell yourself or promote yourself to someone. Jo job applications. Uh, if you can't construct a decent resume, you could be super, super fucking talented and get passed over because you didn't know how to say it. So right. I think right. that's important. And hopefully there'll be more schools to maybe take the trajectory that you do, because I know for myself, you know, I have kids that have multiple talents because I teach a broad, um, the history and appreciation of the visual and performing arts is what I teach. So it's a, that's a broad thing, but I, I help the kids hone in on things that they can do. You don't have to be the next Van Gogh. You, you can be a mid-level guy or a mid-level gal, uh, you know, and make a living. If you're making 40 or $50,000, you're still making more than you're going to make at that factory job you know, sorting packages and you're doing something you enjoy, you know, it's still going to be work. Don't get it twisted. Cause if you, if you're going to make a living at it, you got to work. I'm looking behind you and I looked at your resume and you've worked your ass off. It's not like you just been sitting around like I love art. <laughs> I'm just going to buy another paintbrush and take out. And you know, that's not the thing. You still got to grind at everything. Oh yeah. There's but a grind. It's going to suck a lot less when you're doing something that you love, you know? Oh uh, yeah. That's that's actually what helped me quit my stupid jobs because um, I've worked uh, as a waitress a lot um, or a server and Ooh, um, quite a few years in the, the business for that. And the thing that finally broke me was, you know what, I could make so much more money just sitting on my ass drawing and trying to sell these drawings because there's sometimes where I would come home with just 20 bucks in my pocket and I felt like a baked potato all starchy on the outside and squishy on the inside. <laughs> and I'm like, you had to starch your shirt. And I'm like, you know what, this, I, I can just, the 20 bucks that I made in all the hours I worked today, I could make 
how many drawings in the, the hours that I had to work and then sell each of those for over 20 bucks, you know, like it's a gamble, but it's, it's so much more worth it. And that's what allowed me to be like, all right, I'm going freelance. And then, you know, and I it's did creation. That. Like yeah, if you, know. there, to me, it's so much more satisfying, like doing this podcast. I don't make any damn money doing this. Not yet. <laughs> Maybe. Um, but affiliate I, links, <laughs> right? I, I honestly am in the hole for this podcast. You know, it's a hobby that I'm paying. It's like a soccer league that I have or something. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know, when I get the product, you know, and I've created my intros and I've done all those things, and I, you know, do the editing. I did that. Me, nobody else. You know, the only reason I wanted to do it was because I wanted to do it, and right. that's so much more uh, in rewarding and enriching than punching a clock yes you know? and i'm even doing something you know that i really enjoy i get to work with the kids when i actually get to work with the kids this digital stuff sucks um i miss seeing my kids faces when i'm in there it's really rewarding um so yeah yeah so it's it's one of those things you know even that can be you know more of a job you know because there's things that i'm told to do you know, uh, my principal wants me to do certain things. My assistant principal wants me to do certain things. But when you're in, you know, an art, maybe if you have a commission, you have somebody who's telling you a little bit more what to do uh, than you might normally. But probably the thing that is just most enjoyable. I was in a band. It was the same thing. Nobody told us what to do except the five of us. It was amazing. You know, it was one of my, the best things I've ever done. You know, we didn't have a script even as an actor. I have a script. But when you start from nothing and you mold it into something it's it's just unreal to me. yeah 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 so um that takes me into a question so it's a natural segue see uh <laughs> i would love to know what has been the most memorable and or uh what you feel to be the greatest accomplishment or you can give me both if they're different um what has been something that you've done in your career uh involved in the the arts that has been something just great well, let's see. Um, there's a couple different directions. As far as when I first moved to Indy, I really hit it hard and I got involved really fast. I, I was in a lot of um, I was in a lot of gallery shows and, you know, because I just had gallery ready work ready. So I was like hitting everywhere and stuff. But let me tell you, exposure doesn't, you know, my name was everywhere and people were like, oh my gosh, you must be doing so successful because your name is everywhere. And, and I, I think I didn't really sell a lot that year, even though I had, I was in everything. Um, so that was an interesting lesson to learn, but I was proud that I hit that hard. That was like the beginnings of stuff. Um, I'm, I really love, even though this is a while ago, when I left my, uh, my undergraduate, I, I went to England to live for a year to get my master's and um, just just the, the drive and the yearning I had to leave the US to go somewhere else and live for a year that has stayed with me. And it's funny because I always every year I'm like yearning for the next thing. And I, I think I just need to get to here so I can get to there. And I'm always looking at the next mountain, um, even though I'll reach a plateau every now and then be like, oh, hey, I you know, but but I want to be over there now, you know, <laughs> but um something I've been doing lately that I really enjoy. And I'm, I'm, I guess, you know, I haven't really done a lot of 
maybe commissioned artwork for companies or anything like that. Um, I've had some interesting things locally, like uh, my artwork was on the side of a, got chosen to be um, up for a year on the side of a nine by 29 foot light box. And that was fun. Um, that was in like 2009. And just other other things that have been in and around and my name does get around here and I, I would like to expand more, but, but then also going to conventions and meeting people and meeting celebrities in the industry and having people come up to my table and they already know about my artwork, which is really interesting. You know, it always blows my mind for that. Um, but I love lately, I've been really trying to travel more because traveling is a passion that I have. And I've been trying to find a way to make travel both combined with my art and sustainable and traveling to cons doesn't count because I'm only going from hotel to hotel. So, you know, like I want to experience right. more of the world. And, um, and a couple of years ago, I was doing a sort of couch surfing trek to California. And this is um, not necessarily an accomplishment, but just a, a favorite memory. And I, I mentioned this in chatting, which got us started talking about Clyde Barker. But I, I while I was in California, I, I had the thought to message my contact for Clive Barker. And they got back with me and I was able to go see Clive Barker's studio while I was in California in the um, in the Beverly Hills area. And oh, my God, just being there like I was trying to breathe as much <laughs> of the air in as I could. I didn't see him while I was there. I had met him in 2010, but he was not um, available at the moment, but his assistants were there and I chatted with everybody. I got a tour of the studio um, and just being there and then like leaving, you know, like there's like little sculptures outside that are things from like Cabal or Hellraiser and, and it just, I had to go sit on a mountaintop afterwards. I, you know, Beverly Hills is very mountainous, very hilly. And I, I found this little park area, a little vista, and I got out of my car, parked, and I just sat and I sketched in my sketchbook and I actually cried <laughs> after that because it was just like, it was a reminder of what I want to be and where I want to go and how far I want to take things. And it, it just increased the already large yearning that I have, but it was such a favorite memory. And that just, it still is fuel under my butt, you know, like having been, you know, see that studio, which is no longer there because he moved right after that. So it was, that's a favorite memory for sure. Um, but he's always been such a favorite of mine. So that was, that was a, a huge, you know, really cool thing to see. And, but just seeing, you know, going to any artist studio always makes me feel like honored and excited and puts fire under my butt. Um, another, I was in, I was in California and, and uh, I was nearby another artist that I had met, um, Doug Stanette. And he invited me to come see his studio. And, and I did. And we, we played with Clay for a while. And that was such, that was also a really favorite memory. And so interacting with more artists has always been something that has gotten me excited. And I need to do more of it. And I was planning <laughs> on doing more of it this year. Yeah, no. Man. I was going to go, you know, last year, I, in, in my attempt to travel more, I, I went on what I called a cottywomple, which is basically a travel without a destination. And I was couch surfing and I went to California and I drove um, down Highway 1 and I 
stayed with a friend at Joshua Tree for a couple days, and I visited another national park. I went to New Mexico. I saw Meow Wolf, which is something that is also cool we could talk about if you don't know what that is. And um, No idea. I spent 26 days basically on a solo trip, but also couch surfing. And for me, the reason I did it is because I'd been wanting to... Um, I've been wanting to apply for residencies, like artist residencies where you get paid or at least you get a stipend or, or a free room and board somewhere and you're just supposed to dedicate that time to art or, or inspiration or whatever. And I, I'm terrible at applying to grants uh, or residencies and, and just it, I'm very overwhelmed by the idea of doing it. And I already applied to like one or two and I didn't get in. And I thought, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to make up my own residency. And that's why <laughs> I just, I just took you know, I had a little bit of money saved up. I didn't really have money. I just decided to go into more debt and, uh, and take a trip. I did it as cheaply as I could. And I was gone for 26 days and I had a blast and it, it did, it put the fire under my butt. Um, so I, I'm trying to find more ways of doing that, but maybe sustainably. (laughs) Yeah. Um, well you, you said that you teach, right? Yes. Teach. Teach. Dude, I'm telling you, uh, you know, the, Maybe uh, visiting professor, you know. I can give you awesome. uh, the information of a company that my wife and I uh, we're leaving for uh, Ankara, Turkey next year. So we'll be teaching there, uh, regardless wow. if it's online or whatever. They're going to have us teaching at uh, what's called the Bellicant Laboratory, and uh, we're super excited. It's been in uh, the works since I started wow. college, so about seven, eight years. That my wife has been like, "When are you going to get done? When are you going to get done?" Cause then I graduated. Then most places went three years experience. So now that I got it, we're going. So that's awesome. You can do Congrats. that. That's one Avenue. And then you get still get to teach art and you can do art. And, mm, just a thought. Right. Right. <laughs> so I might've just found your thing. Um, <laughs> so I would love to know, cause it seems like you're, you're very thoughtful uh, in your approach to art. And it seems as though you're very reflective uh, and very, um, informed about who you are as an artist. And I'm sure that that growth continues all the time. I know that it does. You've told me. Um, So I'm curious what, if there were some things that you could tell people on the outside um, to help them under understand and explain to them what this world for you is, what is something that maybe people misunderstand about artists in general that you would maybe want to clarify? So, um, so art in general, and we still haven't chatted about the, the dark art in general, but, but art in general, um, again, people really don't understand, uh, just how much there is available in the art world. I mean, everything that we touch and look at, it had an artist involved in it. I mean, our clothing design, the, the patterns on stuff, you know, I mean, even, even the patterns you get on underwear at Walmart. I mean, an artist created that, you know, Um, CD covers, movie covers, the whole entertainment industry is full of artists, Um, video games and uh, any game really, you know, I mean, there's artists involved in that. I mean, we are surrounded by creativity yet at the same time, there's still this perception that if you're going into the arts, you're going to be starving and, okay, you're going to have a gamble and you are maybe going to have times where times are tough and you're going to have times where you are making it and you aren't making it. And you know what? People that are in a normal job, they deal with that too. You know, they also have tough times. The only uh, thing I am frustrated about is that there's not as many options for say like health insurance because we're on Mm. our own. 
Um, even working as a teacher, I'm part time. So, you know, my options are very limited when it comes to things like insurance and stuff. You know, right now, I mean, like I lost mine last month because they were going to raise it. And I'm like, well, I'm not going to pay that. So I'm going to switch it around. But I'm like at that weird line where I'm making too much and I'm not making enough. I'm like, I'm making too much to qualify for one thing, but I'm not making enough to qualify for the other thing. <sighs> so I'm like in that weird space. So like being an artist, it's it's strange because everything is is self. You know, there's there's all this stuff that you have to be. You know, um, so the whole starving artist thing, that's a, that's a lie. Um, it's, it's a gamble. That's, that's all it is. So you, you, if you're not fully invest, invested in what you're doing, then you might end up being the starving artist because you're not pumping in what you need to pump into it. Right. Um, so it's just, it's the hustle. You have to constantly be hustling for the next thing. And if you enjoy what you're doing, then that's not so terrible, you know, so right. you can keep going and make it um, and also be smart about business, you know, like don't take jobs you don't want to do and don't take jobs that aren't going to sustain you, um, even though I know I've done plenty of that. Uh, <laughs> and, and Isn't other, it weird how we're, we can always give the advice and not always take it? Oh, yeah. Um, and, but on and the, one of the points that you brought up, yeah. um, we do a partnership with um, GE. Uh, General Electric with our school, they came in and built a $200,000 manufacturing lab at our school uh, so that our kids can use it and it gives them real world life skills that they can use and not be stuck in an entry level job right out of high school. So they can leave, go work at GE on an upper level job because they are, they're already qualified at it. Um, but when we went to GE and we took a tour of their facilities, guess what we see all through the facility? Hmm. Sketch work. For a mm. new refrigerator, uh, they've started this old school line that looks like all the old school fridges and things of that nature. They showed us the graphic design work for that. And they're like, this is an avenue that your kids can take here. Uh, the um, design work for cars, the design work for everything. I mean, it's beautiful when you see uh, some of the sketch work and things of that nature that goes into uh, designing cars and things of that nature. It's so beautiful. Um storyboards for film uh, mm. I love showing my kids that I love the matrix I have the full um, script artwork everything that went into it from the Wachowski brothers and I show it to the kids I'm like a film is so much more than a film a film is light and that's an art being able to create the proper light on something a horror film is nothing without good light a horror film is nothing without good sound that is all art so as you said it is all around us. You cannot escape it. And none of us, none of us, not a damn one of us would have got through COVID-19 without it. Because, right. I mean, Netflix and Hulu and all these these things. And it's like, you need to be grateful, thankful. And I'm, I'm with you. I'm so sick that people look, look down on it like, oh, you're an artist. Bitch, yeah, I'm an artist. Like, right. Don't look down on me. Uh, you're a nine-to-fiver. <laughs> come to fruition you know yeah it's exactly like, so yeah yeah i love that you bring up those points i wholeheartedly agree i'm very passionate about it so <laughs> there's so much you can do and and i'm always willing to talk about it and you know i've got students who come to me and they're like my family doesn't really understand they don't think that the, this is a viable career and it's like it's it's totally but it, again you just you have to put in the work you have to make it happen and it's it's like are you going to be self-driven or do you want someone to do that for you and you just sit back and and 
go through the motions of what they tell you to do. You know, I mean, that's, you know, sometimes there is an easier, you know, like I sometimes don't like the hustle and that's why I, I stay teaching sometimes because that fills in those extra gaps. If I wasn't doing teaching, then my hustling would have to be like tenfold to get what I'm getting. And, um, and I'm, I'm ready for that sometimes, you know, it's like, I, I might take a break here or there to, to go and for that. But, but, um, teaching has been really good about that, but also it, it helps keep me on my toes. It keeps my skills higher. Um, when I have to do demos for students, um, I mean, I don't think that I would be as good as, as I am now if it weren't for teaching because it, it, I have to think about what I'm talking about to them. And so it helps to solidify my own ideas and my own dreams about art. It helps me, you know, solidify my skills with um, just faces and light and shadow and value and all that stuff. Cause I'm having to teach it. So I show it and each time I show it, I get better, you know? Right. So, yeah. So um, that's really good. Um, I'm curious, you know, with your life, especially this, um, you know, you're teaching it, you're doing it. How do you find the balance, you know, and it's the thing that you love and it's the thing that you do. It's the thing that you teach. How do you find a balance in your personal life? Do you still do art for fun? Is it able to be for fun when you're, it is your livelihood. It is the thing you're teaching and you're making ends meet. Do you, are you still able to do it for fun? Yes. Yes. Um, And my secret is, part-time teaching. Mm. So I'm, I'm an adjunct. And so I don't think we can have more than two classes anyway. And also night classes. Oh. <laughs> Mostly I'm doing a morning this semester, but which is not terrible. It's just one, one day a week. But, um, but I mostly do night classes, which means I can stay up very late and I can sleep in late and I still have time to get ready for class. So uh, some, some of my classes don't start till six thirty in the evening. And, and that, cause I'm a night owl for sure. And that's when I feel most creative. Sometimes I, it takes me all day to sort of like congeal into who I am. And as soon as the sun goes down, my brain goes beep, 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 beep. I'm <laughs> suddenly at one with the cosmos now and I can work on stuff. Um, and over, uh, when I'm, I don't teach during the summers because I scare myself into, having to focus on the business of my art side of it. But during the semesters I'm teaching, I sort of let teaching take over and I let my art be what I want it to be. And I, I force myself to have fun with it because if I'm not having fun, then it comes out like crap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I recently realized, and this is a big change for me, um, for like 10 years, I've been promoting myself as an artist and illustrator, but over the past couple of years, I've been feeling the burn of, um, like I was getting really slow at doing my illustration work and commissions and stuff like that. And I realized it took me so long to realize I'm not an illustrator. I do not work well with others. <laughs> I do. I mean, I work well on a different level, but when it comes to taking commission work, um, I do not put out my best work and I, I, I'm always like, yeah, this is right up my alley. It's totally my subject matter. I want to go build a hut in the woods now. I'm going to (laughs) go do this. Like, because I'm so varied, I can't focus. I have very ADD in my styles. I mean, I do 2D, 3D. I I build hut in the woods. And I did. I literally did that. I had a commission I had to work on. And I went to one of the local parks and I built a hut instead. (laughs) 
Because <laughs> like, I'm very on whim. I work yeah. by whim. Um, so that's where I'm not great at business because I will let my whims take over. And that's why I generally have stayed teaching. But um, but I, I do feel that my playfulness is very important and it keeps my art fresh and it keeps it interesting. And um, allowing myself to play uh, lets my art grow in a way. And I love that growth and I love the changes. And I, I have grown to accept my um my variety and that i don't really know who i am i've got a voice but i let myself go in different directions and i think it's good for my teaching because then i can also share with my students you know what direction do they want to go in do they want to do collage well i can do collage do they want to do 3d well i can give them tips on 3d and and i like being able to share that knowledge with people whether it's at the university or whether it's at somewhere else um and and that's that's sort of my current path is letting myself play because when I, when I don't, when I do commissions and that's why I don't think I should promote myself as an illustrator anymore because that's, that's just not going to work with how I like to switch around and art directors. I feel sorry for any art director that's worked with me because they don't know what they're going to get. Right. (laughs) It's uh, (laughs) this podcast has now just uh, decreased your, uh, work possibilities. Uh, right. Right. <laughs> but if they give me an open subject matter and let me play with it, that is where things rise. And, and that's where a lot of my clients have come in lately because people come with like a subject. They're like, Hey, I would like something that's in this realm. And I'm like, you got it. You know? Yeah. That's perfect. I want to circle back to something that you talked about. Sure. Um, you said you're a child of the night. I oh, wonder, yes. so uh, I wonder if that, ha- do you think that that has any um, bearing on the fact that you are kind of drawn? Um, do you think it's a personality thing that draws you to some of the more macabre pieces of, of what you're incorporating into your artwork, the more dark realm feel? Do you think it has something to do with that feeling as though you're more alive at the, in the night? You know, I could go in two ways. I would like to say yes. Um, I don't know if it's 100% related, but for me, it feels right that I love darker themes and I'm a night owl. Um, and that's always been how I've been. And my mother was also an artist who had leanings. She loved, she loved you know, horror movies and, and we both uh, had a lot of, common interests with dark themes. And um, she was also, yeah, she would stay up late all night and we would have conversations. Um, I mean, that can go in a different direction too. I can talk about my mother in a little bit, but yes, the night feels very much everything. Everyone else is asleep. The night just feels more still. Um, I identify so much with the idea, like in uh, in Nightbreed, um, Cabal, Tribes of the Moon, you know, it's like that whole nighttime monster, someone who's just a little bit different, even though I, I don't feel that being a night owl makes me a different person, but it does tie into who I am, definitely, um, with with evening and, and the moon. And, oh, always- gosh, so I always much. felt like I'm like you. I feel like I'm more creative late uh, in the summer. I got so much done um, because my wife doesn't stay up as late. My mom was much like your mother. Um, 
she would stay up late. Me and her would sit up talking. We would watch horror films and, you know, and when I was in a band, my best lyrics would come out late at night. Um, you know, every creative thing for me, much like you has come out late, you know, so long as I'm not tired, so long as I'm in that, you know, that sleep schedule, if I get up at noon and then, you know, I'm up until four in the morning and right. Dude, you know, one, two o'clock I'm in the, the zone i'm like it's like in. something just triggers the brain and yeah. you know the sun goes down and suddenly a switch goes on and like the sun comes up in myself you know <laughs> there might be a scientific thing like it's a lunar thing you know because they say that you know the full moon does affect people which makes sense because if the moon can affect how the ocean moves this little thing right. in our head it may only make sense that maybe it has some sort of effect so maybe I it's do like feel, I mean, there's a lot side. of conflicting science out there with like sleep cycles and if there's two different people or if it's really just with your experience or whatever. But I do really feel like there are people that are more geared towards nightlife and night wakefulness um, it just because I experienced that. And so many people I know that are creative experience the same thing that the night is just where they feel most awake. Um, yeah. There's only been one exception to that. And that's uh, a couple of years ago, I actually took a fabric dyeing class in the morning. It was a 9 a.m. class. I almost didn't do it because it was morning. <laughs> it was like a five hour long accelerated thing during the summer. And my boss was teaching it actually. And But I had so much fun in that class that I would go in on my off day and work on stuff so that I could have things to reveal on the next day. And I, it took a little bit, you know, I had to get my coffee and my orange juice and my soylent, you know, because I didn't eat. I don't eat till like 10 or 11 or noon. And so I, I would come in as my morning goblin, like, oh, God. But I had so much fun that it, like I turned into a morning person for that summer only. And because <laughs> I was being creative the whole time. Um, so that's the only time I was able to like flip the switch of my creativity in the daytime was during that class. But that's uh, yeah. And. I'm so glad I'm not the only weirdo. Nah. <laughs> you know, that's like I thrive in the night. But uh, yeah, I was just curious if there was, you know, any correlation to those two things for you. Because um, it, it does seem like a lot of the people that like horror films and things of that nature do tend to be night owls. Not always. Um, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but it does seem like a thing. Um, you know, and my dad wasn't as, like he liked horror films, but it was more. Me and my mom really dove into it. My dad, his he had the natural circadian rhythm, I guess, if, if you want. He was up at five. Didn't matter what time he right. went to bed. It's like he went to bed at one. He was back up at five. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? Back to right. bed, you goofball. You know, but it just was this thing. It's like, it's when I get up. It is what it is. You know? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. um, well, I'd like to end the conversation. I'm always curious. Uh, and it feels as though you and I could talk for about 17 hours. Uh, <laughs> but I'm curious to know what inspired you. And I know we didn't get too much into the dark art, but that's okay. Um, cause I mean, not, not everyone has to be put into a complete box. Um, but I'm curious what inspirations, what drew you to art and maybe dark art in general, you know, as being a fan of Clive Barker, um, was it your mother that, you know, pushed you to that? Was it, uh, a piece of art that you saw in your youth, a movie, what drew you? Okay. So yeah, the, this definitely dives into the subject. Um, 
I remember when I was a little kid, I don't remember how old I was, but I was definitely young. Um, I think my mother showed me a picture of like Hieronymus Bosch, one of the hell paintings. Oh yeah. And I was stuck. I, I was like, yes, this is, this is it. I love this. This is so much fun. And I also had like, there were children's books I had that just were a little bit more on the dark side. I think my mom had a morbid sensibility and my grandmother too, her mother was a little bit on the same point. And, uh, I remember there was this great book I had that there was some monsters in it. I don't even know what it was, but there were illustrations of monsters. And I always, I always loved scary monsters. stories to tell um, in the dark. What? No, scary not that. Stories it was something even for a younger great. audience, even, you know, um, there, when I was a kid, my, uh, my mom and I, we lived out in the country, so we didn't have any neighbors that were really close. So we would practice our damsel in, in distress scream. Um, we would talk about monsters. She would show me horror movies when I was a kid. And, uh, and we talked about special effects. It was her way of being able to show me horror movies and not have me be scared just in case. So we would pause a movie and talk about the special effects and fake blood and guts and stuff like that. And that, that like, always got me so much more fascinated with horror films and stuff like that and themes because I knew that it wasn't real. She was always stressing, this isn't real because she wanted me to enjoy it and she didn't want me to be scared of it. And, um, and so that kind of like got me really interested in that. Uh, we would even talk about what's the most painful thing that can happen to you. It's kind of a morbid thing, but we would like sit around and talking about Ooh, needle in the eye. No, needle in your <laughs> thumb. Like that would be where the thumbnail. Oh gosh, that makes me cringe. Like we would sit around and we'd cringe each other and we'd also like jump scare each other. So we would have like contests on who could scare the other person the most. So, I mean, she would wait for me to get home and this went into, you know, until I moved out for college, you know, I, I'd be coming home from work while still in uh, living at home and she'd be waiting for me behind the door so she could hop out. You know, <laughs> there was one time I waited for a good half hour to scare her to death. She was watching a scary movie and I was sitting behind like a stairwell and I was waiting for the crescendo of the music to happen in the movie. I was waiting for the right moment to like pop out and scare her. And I almost got caught before it happened, but I didn't. And I was able to pop out at the right moment. She ran away and almost beat her pants. And <laughs> I had to like wait because she paused the movie to go get food. And so I'm like waiting for the right You're moment. Like, Damn it. So this all kind of like this relationship I had with my mother, who also is an artist, like that just made me feel that it was part of my life was, you know, frightening things and horror and dark imagery um, because it's how we sort of grew up. I mean, or how I grew up. So it was part of my life from the beginning. And it's funny because I'm, there's a lot, I'm really behind on my horror movies and there's a lot of horror I'm not really a big fan of, but, um, but I love more psychological stuff. I really imprinted on like eighties dark fantasy. So things like the dark crystal and labyrinth and legend and stuff like that. Um, very symbolic and emotional, less serial killer and more dark fantasy is what I'm really interested in. Did you, um, symbolist. Uh, on that, did you ever see a film called Mirror Mask? Oh gosh, yes. I, I watched that in the theater and I cried three times because oh, I love Dave McKean's work. It's absolutely beautiful. Oh, and to know I that it, it. the Jim Henson name, it, you know, kind of lived on in that film with the sun and just, it's beautiful. 
It was so oh, good. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And of course I got to mention, I, I think this got mentioned somewhere else and it triggered like, Oh yeah. Uh, Beetlejuice. Oh, you of know, course. there's even Lydia who's in Beetlejuice. You know, oh, that, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, uh, that, yeah. Tim Burton's work, uh, I think is just life changing for so many people because he had such a unique take and a unique uh, vision that he brought, um, you know, artistically to his films and just, you see one and you know, immediately that it's his, you know, he just has a calling card, you know, just this like dark kind of kooky, you know, it's not like overly scary uh, with maybe like the exception of sleepy hollow, which I absolutely adore that film. Um, You know, so yeah, I think that those experiences that we have with our parents as our kid or as kids are so molding, I guess, you know, it has more of an effect on us than what we expect. Even if it's just waiting under the stairs to scare mom, you know, it's those things last. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And that's really like the core. Like I feel like my love of dark imagery is tied up with those experiences from childhood and my mother and, you know, um, just my interests at the time and living in the woods too. I mean, that's a really big part of it because I was surrounded by, trees and nature so that plays into what kind of dark imagery i like i I love a lot of organic things um i draw a lot of tree people (laughs) yeah well nature is terrifying like can't it's you know when people are like well humanity is so messed up i'm like "Mm, you're right but yeah nature's crazy uh murder hornets they're not really called murder hornets people asian hornets they will literally kill a thousand honeybees with their stinger decapitating them just coming and murking them son uh praying mantises you know the female chops off the head of the male when she's done with them yep that was good no cigarette for me but i'm gonna chop your head off Uh, well definitely the sublimity of nature has a lot to do with dark imagery and you know, I mean, gothic movements, um, like more Victorian gothic. Mm-hmm. They, I took, I actually took a class in the, in college called, um, it was just about gothic things. And we talked about a lot of Victorian gothic imagery and, and how they were obsessed with the sublime and, you know, like old ruins and giant landscapes and huge trees and nature. And, you know, combining that with, you know, a bit of like the, man-made things that are crumbling and how nature can just take over and the vastness of nature can be terrifying and Mm -hmm. there's a lot of unknown factors in nature and weather and and um you know it, it can lead to frightful things and wonderful things too and but also awe that sense of awe and i associate um i love combining that sense of awe with horror and i think a lot of sort of Lovecraftian things touch on that where you've got like the cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. And I really enjoy that idea where you've got these voids of, of uncertainty where you don't know what's in it. Is there, there's magic, there's horror, there's uh, facing the void and looking inside your soul deep, you know, what else is in there? You know, what is beyond ourselves? You know, what is beyond our life? What is beyond this life force? Um, those themes really give you like that pit of the stomach, whoa, sort of feel. <laughs> and 
That's, yeah. I like diving into these uncertain places. And actually, if people ask me what my art's about, I often talk about in between spaces. So like our dreams and our emotions that can be very ambiguous, you know, we can categorize out the wazoo and there's still going to be ambiguous emotions that we can't define. Yeah. Um, and I love working in those in-between spaces. Death is an in-between space. Dreams are an in-between space. And so my work really just dives into all of these ambiguous, androgynous crevices, whether it's dark, dark, or mildly dark. <laughs> I mean, I, lo- I love the the uh, the notion and the way you frame that, the in-between, because those transitions are the things that really are kind of beautiful because a lot of times there's so much uncertainty there. You know, I think that's why people are so consumed in life by death because it's such uncertain. It's the most uncertain thing that you'll ever have because nobody has an answer. You know, I, as an atheist, I, I can't tell you for certain there's no God. I can't possibly do that. I can't tell you what happens to me except that I will become dirt. I will become a tree. I will become grass. I will become the universe. That yeah. That's a thing. But there's still you know, what, what happens to my thought? Right. And I still, I feel like there's a lot of power in those themes and, you know, speaking about like belief and non-belief and things like that. It's like our science gives us the words to tell us what things are composed of, but Mm -hmm. that doesn't render them meaningless. It doesn't render them. um, uh, We understand the, the physicality of it, but that's, that's the extent, you know, there's still more things that we don't know. Like if we take love, for instance, you know, we love, we know that love is about chemicals in the brain and things like that. And that we can, we can pinpoint, we can see, you know, molecules, we can pinpoint what's happening with the chemicals in the brain and everything, but that doesn't render the love meaningless. You still experience it. It's still an emotion. It's still something that you go through Right. Just because you have words to describe what's happening and you can see what's happening doesn't mean that it's not real. Right. You know, so I, I think that these these psychological questions of, you know, um, definitions versus what's real and not. Uh, there's so much wiggle room when it comes to stuff like that. And those in-between spaces allow for infinite wiggle room. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, I absolutely love so much of your uh, perceptions on the world and art. I just love it. I, I could sit and chat with you forever. Um, Lydia, I greatly appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat with me. Uh, I'm super excited for people to hear this conversation. Uh, as we send this out, uh, I would love for you to promote yourself again. Not a time for humble bragging here. Uh, tell people how they can help uh, you continue to, you know, make art your career how can they uh, buy things from you what what can you promote well definitely um first of all my website is lydiaburris.com l-y-d-i-a-b-u-r-r-i-s.com and i have um a lot of links that are on there i'm on facebook i'm on instagram my instagram handle is mad artist lydia um <laughs> love it no nah, and uh and I do have a Patreon. It's um, it's sort of in uh, in in between state right now because <laughs> I'm figuring out what I'm gonna do with it next. But people can, you know, I'm using it as sort of a a, a little bit of a tip jar at the moment, um, without a lot of specifics. But I'm I'm gonna do something with it soon. And uh, just you know, um, those are where you can start to look at my stuff and uh, just follow along. You never know what I'm gonna do next. 
<laughs> right on. And I'll, right. uh, put that in the episode description to get to your website and things of that nature. Your work is so phenomenal. Uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled that I got a chance to talk to you. So thank you so much for Wonderful. your time. Well, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here and it was great to chat with you. Our next guest is Erica Kaufman. She is a small business owner, horror fanatic, graphic artist, and t-shirt designer. In our conversation, we discuss the negative perceptions men in the horror world often have in regards to the women who work in the industry. We also discuss one of Erica's favorite experiences in the industry, which allowed her to make a series of custom merchandise for the cast of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Erica proves she's an absolute super fan of the horror genre and that she is one badass lady. I loved our chat and I hope all of you do as well. Uh, hi, my name is Erica Kaufman. Um, I am a illustrator and um, graphic designer and owner of a company called Atomic Cotton and I uh, design t-shirts for horror and cult movies um, and just like pop culture, um, kind of just whatever. <laughs> and um, my husband and I own a screen printing company. We print all of our own stuff. Um, we do it all in-house, all the pre-press, all the artwork, all the production, all the shipping, all the everything. It's me and my husband. And uh, yeah, I think that kind of covers it. <laughs> <laughs> I do you uh, ever find yourself jaded, you know, about wearing other people's stuff? Like, do you never, do you only wear your, your own clothes? Oh, no, 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 no. I hardly ever wear my own stuff. Like, um, I, I really, like, I was looking at my stuff the other day. Um, I have mostly Paul Bear Press and uh, Pizza Party Printing. Um, those are the two companies that I probably wear the most besides. But I, like, I promote people all the time and I'm always wearing everybody else's stuff. I just happen to be wearing one of my own shirts. <laughs> Looks gnarly. What is it? What's um, up? It's for the Ranger. It's an indie film that came out last year. Very cool. I like that shirt. The color's dope. Uh, I think it's on Shutter right now. I'll have to check it out. I love Shutter. Yep. It's my jizzy jam. As a horror I fish wanted it to look like uh, Lisa Frank. Trapper oh yeah, like the like, trapper like keepers from back in the day. Yep. Yeah, that you nailed it. That's awesome. The color schemes are great. It's super dope. Yeah, yeah I wondered. Uh, sort of like most. A lot of my artwork is really bright and and poppy and uh, has that sort of aesthetic to it. Our colors are very bold when it comes to the horror color scheme. <laughs> it's very eighties. Yeah, yeah, I mean the eighties were all about that. Very yeah. very eighties. Yeah, I can't get behind every '80s fashion choice, but I love the colors. <laughs> yeah, I, I like if I know that people can't see me, but I obviously have not left the '80s. I look the same I did, like same way I did now as a small child: jean vests, <laughs> braids, and like jeans. <laughs> hey, if it works, do you? Works. I mean, that's what's great about horror. Uh, yep. Everybody kind of leaves you the hell alone about uh, you doing what's best for you and. It's kind of fun. Uh, people have kind of reiterated that 
that notion that the, the horror family is very open and yeah. uh, very friendly. And, you know, we've talked about that ad nauseum uh, just as to why I think that that is. Um, but I want to talk about what you do. And I want to know, we kick these off with talking about presumptions and assumptions that people make about you uh, as a female who is involved in the horror genre. Uh, I've had a, a bunch of different answers for this. And as someone who makes your own gear and makes your own shirts and all of those different things, I'm sure that there's unique assumptions that people make about you about all of those things. So yeah. curious to, to know what those are. Um, well, obviously like off right off the bat, I'm, I'm weird. And I'm, I'm a weird girl. I'm a, I'm a dark girl. I'm, like different, eclectic, artistic. Um, when I'm at the booth and I'm, you know, on the road and I'm standing in front of a wall of my artwork, probably wearing one of my shirts because I do wear them at conventions. Um, and let's just, I, I'm gonna gonna make a generalization here, but let's say a man walks up to me and it has happened from time to time. <laughs> we'll be like, I bet you, you haven't even seen half these movies or like, I bet you don't even know what this is. And I'm like, dude, this is my fucking company. Like I run this shit. This is my artwork. You know, do not presume to think that I don't know shit. I'm not the fucking booth, babe. Like this is my house. You can't have any of these shirts go away. Like <laughs> fuck you, dude. <laughs> beat it. Fucking beat it. And, um, it's funny also with me, my husband and I, um, he's the nice one and I'm the mean one. Like I'm the one that you don't fuck with when it comes to kind of all that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, those are fair. You know, I've seen yeah. some of those interactions uh, occur when I've been at, at, you know, at cons and things of that nature, you know, people make the presumptions that, yeah, she's a poser, you know, she's just here to, to wear the outfits or do whatever. And, you know, I've went with friends. Yeah. The, uh, like not so much, much now, but definitely in the beginning of my coming into the scene or whatever, that was questioned a lot. Like it was definitely, if somebody had a question, they would ask Zach or, you know, it was, everything was directed towards him. And after a while it was like, I do the art, you know, like if you want to talk about screen printing, he'll fucking chat your ear off, but I'm the one that did all the artwork or, you know, it was a friend of mine and that's just like, having to repeat myself over and over again. Um, but there was, there's was definitely a few people that like could always look past me being a woman or whatever and just be like, Oh, you're extremely fucking talented. Like, good job. I want to work with you. And it's just, there's so many different ways that I've been perceived over the years because of what I do and how I look and just the way I live my life. And it's, it's more telling of them than it is of me really. So. Yeah. Yeah. And you and I were uh, speaking a little bit about this before. Um, I had so told you that uh, I was doing a little bit of research as far as uh, women in horror. And uh, there were statistics that came out that said 54% of the industry is female. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you guys are running this shit, you know, yeah. without you, we, we don't, this this genre doesn't exist yeah. you know if without a the final girl or the screen queens you know when you think about the the female leads that are in these horror films they're the the desire of the lead usually yeah. so there's, there's usually the lead man that like wants her and then the the monster wants to kill her 
And then the dudes that are in the audience want her as well. So yeah. like, it's this like holy trinity of desire that's all driven by the female lead. You know, mm-hmm. and so you can name a ton of these, you know, Scream and uh, Halloween, of course, and Nightmare on Elm Street. You know, mm-hmm. some of the big ones, you know, Friday the 13th, you know, all of these things are driven by that. And then when you go to cons and things of that nature, I see just as many females there rocking the stuff, getting into the costumes, really getting into it. And yeah, um, I think that's why I like a lot of the independent scene right now, because. That's where I see a lot of women working their asses off um, and trying to be, you know, authentic and original and good (laughs) and like fearless. Um, I have a friend, her name is Jill Six, and she just uh, she directed a movie called The Stylist that just came out. But I've known her for like shit, like eight years or so. And you know, to see her go from making a short film to, you know, having a feature and premiering in fucking Fright Fest UK. Like, that's amazing, you know? And I've I've gone from selling shirts out of the trunk of my car to being, you know, a, a, a fairly well-known artist in the horror industry. Um, and, you know, it's just, we. I think women just, we work our asses off. I don't know that we do it harder than men so much, but it's definitely um, a little bit harder to be taken seriously. But yeah, which is weird. I think the quality of the work is, you know, equally as good as any man's. Yeah. But it's just how we're perceived. I completely agree. You know, and as I said, 54% <laughs> of y'all, like, so it's like, I don't know why that perception hasn't changed, but I, I think it falls into the same thing that the, the horror genre has negative associations with it, that it's not art and that it's, yeah, it's definitely lowbrow and just like low class, look down upon, not serious sort of schlock trash sleaze. Yeah. But that's why I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and Lydia, Lydia Burris, we had talked a little bit about her. Um, I had spoken with her and she, you know, is just phenomenal. Her artwork is just amazing. Yeah, she's a fine artist for sure. Yes, and that's what she said. She's like, as someone who, you know, went to school for these things and, you know, teaches this, she teaches at a community college, teaches about art. She's like, the entire purpose of art is to make you feel. Mm -hmm. And she's like, then wouldn't horror be one of the highest forms? And I was like, Ooh. it's an extremely visceral feeling like, <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And I think that maybe the, the, the female issue falls into that same realm. We just, mm-hmm. these assumptions are there and it's, but I think, I think it's coming to, to a change. And yeah. that brings me to something else I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how long you've been involved in the, the horror industry and things of that nature, but I'm curious to know uh, in your experience, um, how has it changed? Um, um, so we have been vending and attending conventions for about nine years, I believe. Um, we've been printing 12 and yeah, vending nine. And um, so when we started doing the conventions, um, you know, there was, there was obviously celebrities and stuff, but it was maybe like 10 bucks an autograph or, you know, it, it, they weren't they weren't the main thing. The main deal was, you know, the merch or the movies or, you know, it was more based in the 
the vendors and the arts and that type of thing. And then The Walking Dead happened. <laughs> and this weird thing happened to conventions and it was like all the money started going into the celebrities, like just ridiculous amounts of money for autographs and all this crazy stuff. And it seemed like there were more and more and more and more conventions based around celebrity stuff. So the artists and the vendors and the makers had to like pick and choose which ones they wanted to do. And so that was really tricky for a while. Um, just trying to find like a, a good convention to call your home that you knew was going to be like a good steady show. Uh, Texas Frightmare Weekend is our number one show every year, without a doubt. Um, that was the first show that we ever attended as fans. And it's just, it's one of the first shows that we ever vended at. And it's an, it's an amazing show. Um, Crypticon, Mad Monster Party. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of conventions out there. And uh, so we just started doing a lot of them. And then <laughs> um, it started to get to be too many. And um, a lot of changes happened in the management. And it was just like a lot of the heart like was not part of the convention scene. It was just like a machine grinding away, like trying to, you know, do as much as you can just to do like the bare minimum. And uh, so that was kind of 2019. Like it was really, really good for a lot of years. And 2016, it kind of started going, eh. Um, so, wait, yeah, that's right. Last year was just uh, brutal. <laughs> it was rough on the road. And then COVID hits and everything just fucking stops. Everything stops. So, like, all these people, like, people that I have worked with on the road for years, eight years, eight or nine years, are now just have no real steady income yeah and is, it's it's the film industry it's all the arts it's everything it's like every level of production from a food to a finished final product of whatever is just like like halted and it's really bizarre <laughs> yeah yeah um what is uh what has the, been the impact of the internet uh, do you think that's hurt some small businesses um, as much it's as it's definitely helps hurt. Oh, I think a lot of small businesses because um, there's so many different ways that you can use it to your advantage that I think people get confused as to like what platform or like what market or who they should be like how they should be using it to their advantage. I think there's a lot of confusion around that and just like trying to you have to basically brand yourself and be your own advertising person and like you know figure out when am I going to do releases and when am I going to do this and when am I going to you know am I going to have a contest am I going to have a giveaway am I going to you know blah, blah 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 like there's all these things that you have to plan for and we're full-time screen printers so we have clients coming to us all the time for whatever they need and uh, it's just, it's rough, man. It's, it's hard being like a self-employed um, business person, like small business. And like, we we're so small business that we didn't get any sort of like government aid. We got the two stimulus checks and that was it. 
Damn. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's got to make it tough. Well, uh, on a more positive light to bring it down out of the COVID-19 dreariness, um, what's been one of the things that you've done that has been um, the thing you're most proud of as far as your work? Um, I don't know that it's it's kind of what I'm most proud of, but what I kind of just sort of treasure the most is uh, the relationships that I made with the cast of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> <laughs> early on um i think it was my second yeah my second convention um i had designed a texas chainsaw massacre like leatherface t-shirt and ed neal was there he plays the hitchhiker and so i was already freaked out that he was there um because i'm a huge fan and <laughs> The show had barely been started for maybe like half an hour and he comes running over to my booth and grabs me and goes, I have to show you something. And I'm like, like freaking out thinking that I'm in trouble. Like I did something with like licensing or something like I'm in trouble. And he drags me back to his booth and he starts showing me all these posters that he has from like Poland and all this just like crazy artwork. And he's like, I'm showing you this because I know that you're an artist and you, you have this, you have a vision and, and I, I see it in you and I want you to do, I want you to design a t-shirt for me. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, do a custom t-shirt for me and my character. And like, it'll just be, you know, do something for me. And so I was just like, holy shit. The <laughs> from Texas Chainsaw Massacre wants me to design a t-shirt for him. So I did. And it turned out like, I'm really proud of how it turned out. I think I did a really good job on it. And so um, it was then like two months, two or three months later, we had another show with him and it was a big Texas Chainsaw reunion. And it was at the time it was Gunnar, Marilyn, Terry McMinn, um, Ed, John, the truck driver. I don't remember his name. Um, another lady, and then the guy that plays Jerry, I can't remember his name. So it was like everybody. And Ed took me <laughs> and took me to the cast and took me to each person and had me like show them my artwork. And like, all, like it was very intimate and like this magical moment. And like they all signed this print that I have. So I have the entire cast of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre signature on like my artwork, which is insane. Um, but then um, John Dugan commissioned me to do a t-shirt for him. And uh, we just started like talking to Gunner about working on something. So throughout the span of my business career, or whatever, I've done custom shirts for um, Ed, John Dugan, Gunner, and um, Caroline Williams for Texas Chainsaw Massacre people. And that's just, that feels really cool to me for being such a big Texas Chainsaw fan. And like, it's just every time Ed calls, cause he does, he's also a voice actor. He mm -hmm. does like all these crazy fucking voices. And I'm just like, that's Ed Neal fucking doing crazy voices. <laughs> on my you know, it's just, it's really cool. It always gets me. Yeah. That's super badass. Yeah. 
it, it's always fun. Like, especially when you meet like one of your heroes and people that you admire in the industry and they're everything you wanted them to be. And then yeah. Gunner was steps beyond that. Gunner was the biggest teddy bear person. Like um, we went to, out to breakfast with him a, a few times. Um, he always got pancakes and he was just, he smelled like old spice and he was such a delight. And the shirt that I did of him was uh, he did a, a photo shoot at, I think it was mad monster party um, where he wore the full leather face getup. And I was the first, like he had the actual pants and shirt and apron was all gunners, like original shit. And it was the first time he'd worn it. And I want to say 45 years or something crazy like that, like put it on. Wow. And I was the first person to take a picture of him in it. And I did, that was what I based my illustration on was the first time that he like wore his old outfit. Is it, is it true that he hates the movie? Um, uh, no. Because I, I'd read in a couple of interviews. Uh, I mean, I don't think like, speculated. I don't think he hated it. I never got that vibe off of him. Yeah, I didn't ask him uh, when I met him. I was just having him sign something. I was yeah, just excited to meet him. He definitely loved his fans and yeah. was very into like the Saw's family. Like he was, he was pretty gung ho about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, he he's definitely much more of a teddy bear than uh like Kane Hodder. Uh, he's Kane a total Hodder. teddy bear. What? Kane's such a nut, dude. He choked me. Like yeah, he chokes everybody. That's his thing. <laughs> It's so funny. He, he actually doesn't do that anymore because um, of problems that he's had. But if you ask him, he will choke you. <laughs> yeah, he did. He, he just doesn't do me. it. Like, yeah. Yeah. He was like, you're he's like, I'm going to pretend that I'm choking you. And of course, my mom's taking the picture and she's yeah. technologically impaired. Uh, and she's like fumbling around. She's like, I don't know how to do it. He's like, your face is terrible. He's like, I'm going to choke you for yeah. real. You're terrible at this. And I was like, oh, okay. He's kidding. Nope. No. Nope. He, he started choking me and <laughs> turning yeah, purple. He lifted me off the ground. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Can, I'm, I'm a little big for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's he's a big dude. Yeah. And, uh, just he's such a cool dude, though. Yeah. He's a total sweetheart. He made my day. Uh, he yeah. really did. Even though, you know, I was like, oh, I'm choking. And my mom got the picture. It made for a story. I'm going to remember mm-hmm. that forever. That was so yeah. awesome. We've done uh, probably the most conventions with Kane Hodder and Bill Bill Mosley. Oh like, yeah, of course. And Sid Haig at the time, like Sid, Bill, and Kane were going to be at our show. <laughs> yeah. So we spent many weekends around those three jokers. <laughs> right, and then uh, <laughs> I was at one con where it happened to be um, Sid Haig and Bill Mosley, and then Danny Trejo and DDP and they were all right there next to each other. And you talk about goofy. Those Rowdy. dudes were wild. Trejo, yeah. He's running around with a bullhorn yelling in people's ear and just nuts, man. Yeah. It was so fun. And uh, that's the beauty of the cons, man. You just never yeah. know what experience you're going to get. Everyone's so um, unique. And does two more things that always get me. He has stink bombs. He's always doing stink bombs, but um, he has a, prop machete that he has and he'll slam it on the table and it's just like bam like it makes this really loud slam and i'll be like at my booth or something and i'll hear bam and i'm like kane god damn it 
Because <laughs> it's like, like it's such a jarring loud smack, and then he just like giggles like <laughs> every yeah. time. That sounds that sounds on brand for my experience. <laughs> <laughs> so I like to definitely understand and know. Um, what gets people into these specific niches? Um, so how did you get into the horror genre? Did it start from uh, wee little youth or what, what prompted you? I was born into it. Um, <laughs> my dad um, is just a, like, was just fiction, like was just lived a fiction life, books, TV, anything. Um, my mom worked two jobs my dad worked a nine to five so when i like i was pretty much raised by my dad and cable tv hbo um i had cable tv and my tv from five on like in in my bedroom i was raised just in front of a tv and um i've always been really artistic um i would say that the beginning of my artistic like creative dabblings or whatever when I was a kid was photography and um, some drawing, but mostly photography. And then uh, once I realized that I couldn't really profit off of photography <laughs> the way that I wanted to, um, I've always really, really, really been in t-shirts. Like I just, it's something I've always been sort of passionate about and um, horror movies being like, you know, the staple of, what I watch and what I care about, just, just dark fiction in general. Um, I mean, I like everything, but if, if I'm going to turn on the TV just to, you know, kill some time, it's going to be something horror related. And uh, I totally forgot where I was going, but t-shirts. Um, so after, when I was in college, I got a job for a screen printer and um, I just learned the trade basically just, you know, worked there doing that. And then I got a job doing pre-press. So I learned all the computer side. And um, when I, when Zach and I got married, we were just like, well, fuck it. Let's just get screen printing equipment and see what happens. Um, it, begin, it began just kind of like fucking around, making sh shirts for bands and our friends and things like that. And um, I made two shirts for myself. I made a critters t-shirt and a martyrs t-shirt. And <laughs> do you still have yeah. that martyr shirt? Yeah, we do. It's on the website. I need that. <laughs> Love um, that film. So yeah, critters and martyrs. And I had two friends that each wanted one. So we sold them out of the trunk of our car in front of a movie theater. <laughs> and then it was just like, you know, we went to a couple of conventions and met people that were doing it that were, you know, on the road making t-shirts and just, making money at it, traveling around and making art. And I was like, shit, that sounds like fun. And that's something that I know really well. And I definitely have a unique perspective when it comes to, you know, art and graphics. And there wasn't really a market being filled for what I could bring. And um, so I did it. <laughs> It took a lot of pushing from like Zach and my friends and whatnot. Cause obviously like, I'm one of those artists that's just like, nobody's ever going to want to wear something that I make, you know, like my art's not that good. Nah, you know, just self-deprecating, but um, 
I got pushed by my loved ones and I excelled at it and I'm continuing to be fairly good at it, even though I'm struggling because of COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I think hopefully you will rise from the ashes like a Phoenix. I <laughs> do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I'm glad that you had a good show this last weekend. Uh, it was so much fun just being like, it was just like a taste of normal. And it was the Kansas city horror club. So it was like people that I've known for years and just kind of felt really safe. It was the traditional Halloween drive-in thing that yeah. they do every year for like six or seven years now. So that's was, dope. Yeah. We have something real similar close to uh, here in Louisville, uh, up in Georgetown, Indiana. Um, they have a drive-in and they do like a, a mini haunted house that you have to go through to get your concessions. They do a, uh, Freddy Krueger terror bus that rides around. I don't, I doubt they're doing it this year. Yeah. Um, but the drive-ins are thriving. They really are. Which is great. I felt, um, I felt comfortable when I was there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've been a couple times. We went and saw Jaws and ET together, which was fucking great Good pairing. Yeah. It was so fun. <laughs> and then uh, we saw Burt Kreischer. He was doing the live tour. Um, for the people that are fans of his, he's doing the he was doing the Hot Summer Nights tour, and uh, that was so much fun. Uh, it just sounded like such a ridiculous asinine idea, but he made it work, and it was just a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, so I'm glad to see that resurgence because I saw so many great movies at the drive-in yeah. because it was we were broke as hell. Yeah, uh, so it was. Yeah, like, it was ten bucks for a car. Like exactly, and yeah. you could bring your own food because they weren't yeah. really going to check it that thoroughly. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> and uh, so a lot of my childhood was, you know, the quintessential years were spent at the Kenwood Drive-in here in Louisville, uh, and then the South Park Drive-in, which was I loved it even more. Mm -hmm. uh, just so yeah, I mean, I'm glad that something good is coming out of COVID, and the resurgence yeah. of the drive-in is great. Yeah. So. Well, with this being horror and it coming out in the month of October, uh, where all of the tourists come to horror, where the rest of us real horror <laughs> fans are like, welcome. We're glad to see you. <laughs> um, I'm having people share their paranormal or ghost experiences. I love these stories. I have a ton myself. Uh, and me and you were talking about this. It, it feels as though horror people are more attuned to this stuff. So yeah, I think there's, though a, we always there's have the empathy story. that comes along with being a horror fan. Yeah. And an awareness to um, things that might not be perceived by other people because we're just a little more open. Yeah. So what you got? Um, <laughs> it starts a little bleak, <laughs> but when I was a very small child, um, my uncle committed suicide and we moved into that house with to live with my aunt um and my cousin who was actually in college at the time and so we moved into this very big very fancy like almost like children in the attic house <laughs> like it oh, was no. really yeah it was a super fancy house and um it was just very haunted um i definitely saw apparitions i saw things move. Um, both my sister and I had encounters with what we b believed to be his spirit. Um, just I had, a, I had a lot of encounters there. So years later, um, I was 22 and in college and um, 
my aunt, the, the aunt whose husband had committed suicide, um, she was, you know, getting older and not in the best health. And so one night I go to bed and I have this dream that I'm in this house on stilts and my aunt is there and she's telling me how she has to go on without me. And, um, you know, she loves me and all this stuff and she's happy for me. She's proud of me and she'll see me later and she has to go on without me. So we walk down the stilts and she gets into this car and drives away. And, um, I can see in the rear view mirror, me standing in front of a wall of pink roses, which were her flowers. So that's the dream that I have. And right as that ends, I woke up in reality, this is real life now to my dad shaking me away saying your aunt just passed away bell just passed away so it was <laughs> like i firmly believe that she came to me in my sleep and said i'm leaving you know i, I just want you to be aware that i'm this has happened <laughs> and i have i have to go now um and she had fallen and hit her head and passed away real suddenly in the middle of the night and uh yeah so that's my that's my spooky paranormal story. Oh wow, man! Oh, but it continues. So, <laughs> um, a couple of weeks after that, I was in my room doing homework. I'm in college at the time, and I was just I was working on some drawing, and I was smoking a cigarette. And in the background, um, crossing over with John Edwards was on. Do you remember that show? It was like oh. he was like a psychic, and oh yeah. He could talk to your loved one. So South anyway, Park, I'm sitting the there absentmindedly paying attention to it, working on my stuff, smoking. And he's talking to a woman, a woman and this woman says, everyone came through, even Helen. And right when it said even Helen, it got really loud. And then my TV shut off. Helen was my aunt's name. Her name was Helen. And I was like, okay. And I just, I remember just smoking my cigarette and sitting there and being like, my TV just did that. All right. That's, that's yeah. wild as hell. <laughs> Even though I'm not a big fan of his, that's wild. Oh, no, he's no total phony. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, uh, I, I have a similar, well, not similar, but a story that begins with suicide. Um, I grew up in a house. I won't say it was children, children in the attics type house, but uh, it's big. It was, uh, I think it was eight, eight rooms, three stories. It was my mom's childhood home and uh, her grandmother, my great grandmother had committed suicide in the house. Uh, she had dementia and really um, should have been somewhere that they could have taken care of her uh, toward her end. And she just kind of lost it and hung herself. Uh, it was in an area of the house that we called the office. Uh, my dad had converted it to an office. It used to be, I think, the parlor. Mm -hmm. um, so they used it to host different things or whatever. And uh, I lived there until I was about five, I think. Uh, and it, it was always interesting to hear the stories. Um, my mom had had experiences. Um, she had seen images in the window of uh, what looked like an apparition of a of what maybe uh, would be an elderly woman. Um, her sister had had an encounter where someone set the clear impression of an ass sitting on the that bed. To me, when I was um, a kid. But the one of the ones that I remember uh, is that we were all asleep. My brother and I shared a room, uh, just 
for comfort. There were enough rooms. <laughs> it was a huge house. Yeah. But uh, we heard something coming from the third floor. And at that time, there was nobody living on the third floor. And you heard it sounded like a bowling ball hitting every single oh, step. <laughs> so I hear it and I'm like looking. My door would be open, you know, and there'd be a light on in the hallway, a little uh, nightlight or whatever. And uh, I look over at my brother and he's awake. He's sitting up, right? <laughs> and I'm like, okay, so it's not just me. Uh, and then my dad comes into the hallway and he's just staring at the door. He's like, okay. And uh, <laughs> I didn't want him to open the door. I was like, don't do it, dad. And he opens the door and he just stares. He, you know, I can't see. So all I see is my dad just standing in the door. And I'm like, okay. Is he going to move? What is there? You know, don't kill dad. Right. And uh, nothing. Absolutely nothing. there. And uh, shit like that would happen. Um, they said that, you know, of course, I don't remember a lot of this, but my mom and dad would talk about just hearing things that sounded like going through chores, like the sink would turn on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had it was an older house. So the uh, the heat had to be lit manually. So the pallet would have to be lit that way. And they said on several occasions, it would come on in the middle of the summer. The heat would. Yeah. And they're like, all right, uh, I guess I'll go down and turn this thing off. And, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> I'm not going down there. <laughs> yeah, dude. I was like, that's all you, dad. That's a dad job. That's a youth thing. Um, so. Yeah, I it started with, you know, what we think was probably my great grandmother. And uh so it, it never really felt like not not that I recall uh at that young age um that in, there was anything that, you know, I should be overly terrified of. No, it was I never felt like a hostile presence whenever I I think it was my uncle whenever he was around. I actually remember being really like I don't know if it's just a thing that happens to little kids, but you'll just realize that you're alone all of a sudden <laughs> and you're just filled with dread. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember that happening and then feeling something enter the room and then feeling calm. Mm. So I don't know if that was something but I remember it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to say the human memory is so strange. Yeah. A mom might listen to this podcast and give me a call and be like, that ain't how it fucking happened. Right. And I'm like, Oh, well that's how I remembered. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just so funny. Um, well, this is the time where, um, hopefully we can get you a little business, uh, tell people where they can get your products. I'm probably going to dip over and buy a couple. going to get that martyr shirt for sure. I mean that. Um, so tell um, people where they can find your stuff. Right on. Um, AtomicCotton.com. The two words, Atomic Cotton. And we are all over the Facebooks and um, Instagram. Um, yeah, EZTZ13 on Instagram is my Instagram. And But yeah, if you just find us on Facebook, there's links to all of our other stuff. Super rad. Uh, yeah, uh, Erica, I like to that. think, do what now? <laughs> We are around Etsy too. We have all of our stickers <laughs> and small things are on our Etsy store. Perfect. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. No uh, problem. Always super rad to nerd out with other horror fans. And yeah. uh, that dude that uh, presumed you didn't know shit. Fuck that guy. For real. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. No problem. Anytime.